So we have uh, my multimedia presentation to you, which is the six-page handout there, uh, because it always works wherever I go. I don't have to worry about the technology or the connections or did I bring the right adapter or anything like that. Uh, so uh, it's not as flashy as having you know, something up on the screen, but it never breaks. So I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of that. Um, welcome. Uh, this is all about Eve, women, and the pastoral epistles. I chose that title for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, I love movies. Uh, and if you saw the 1950 movie with Betty Davis and uh, a very small cameo by Marilyn Monroe, who was nominated for 14 Oscars, won six of them. Um, there's, a, there's a character, Eve Harrington, there, who um, is a little bit of a double entendre. She's a person, a character, but she also represents Eves uh, who are ambitious, and there are other Eves that uh, work their way through the movie as well. And there are some Eves in the pastoral epistles, uh, and there's some Eves at Ephesus. Uh, so I thought All About Eve would be a, would be a kind of fun, fun title to have there uh, because not all women are Eves, right? And as we look at the women in the pastoral epistles, we'll have to take a look at the Eves, but we'll also take a look at some other women that we find there as well. So uh, as we uh, kind of do our time together, what we'll do is we'll do an hour, and they'll have a 15-minute break, and then we'll do the last hour. And then the last hour... I'm hoping it's more interactive, um, and we can do question and answer and some other kinds of things like that, okay? So the first one, I'll, I'll do a little bit more data kind of stuff, and the second half, we'll do a little more discussion, questions, anything that you might have. Uh, if you're wondering how to pronounce my name, uh, it's Ken, okay? <laughs> if you want to try Soprowski, that's awesome, love it, okay? Um, it's uh, built, it, it's a Polish name, and anybody recognize that root? Sucrose, okay. It's the Polish word for sugar, okay, uh, with a ski on the end, uh, which maybe helps you have the soft C rather than a hard C, okay. Um, so, yes, I didn't choose it, um, and it hasn't always been easy, but if that helps you uh, remember, then great. Uh, I, I teach at Abilene Christian University. I'm dean of the College of uh, Bible there. Um, I teach New Testament and Greek, and I teach a class called Women in the New Testament, and I also teach a class, um, New Testament Ethics, so that gives you a sense of the kinds of things that I do. I've been at ACU since... 1999, I also taught at Lubbock Christian for three years and uh, at Bangor Theological Seminary uh, for two years. Um, I did my undergrad at ACU and then I did my uh, MDiv and my PhD at Yale. My wife supported me through while she taught high school. So it gives you a little bit of background there. If, if you want to know more, I'm happy to be <coughs> disclosive as well. So uh, in terms of the context of First Timothy, uh, what I'd like to do is kind of start in broad kind of ways and then kind of move closer, okay? And so broadly, uh, talking about 1 Timothy, there's a lot of false teaching going on. Uh, we know that two leaders have been expelled. Uh, they're named in 
chapter 1, verse uh, 20 there of 1 Timothy. It talks about uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, okay? Uh, and so as you read through First uh, and 2 Timothy, what you'll find is a whole lot, and by whole lot, uh, namely 17 times in just the book of 1 Timothy, that you get words pertaining to teaching, able to teach, teaching, teacher, teach, teach otherwise. So all the words built on that teach kind of roots there uh, because that's what they're struggling with. Okay, that, That's one of the things they're struggling with. And then the other thing you notice uh, is women pop up a number of times in the pastoral epistles. Uh, so you get women in worship in chapter 2. Uh, you get some female deacons in chapter 3. You get widows and not just any widows, you get four types of widows. You get uh, real widows, you get younger widows, you get widows that the family needs to support, you get widows that have strayed away, um, and then you also get some uh, women that are called weak women in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then you also get Eve. Uh, so six different, six different kinds of women there, okay? But not every, you need some more? But not every woman, as I mentioned before, uh, is an Eve, but there are some Eves there at Ephesus. And so we'll try and identify what does it mean to be an Eve in Ephesus, okay? So the first passage that I want us to take a look at is women that are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. So verse 11 says, uh, The women likewise must be serious, not slanderers, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, uh, one way that that passage has been interpreted is that the women are wives of deacons. And you're probably familiar with that interpretation. It's been very popular, and you'll see it in commentaries, okay? Um, but there are some questions about that, and the two big questions are, so why would there be qualifications uh, for the wives of deacons, but not for the wives of elders? In other words, if it's so important that these wives of deacons be upstanding, why wouldn't it be as or more important for the wives of elders to be upstanding? Okay? So that's, that's a question why we would go with the wives of deacons option. Uh, the other one is a little more technical. Okay? Uh, the construction is different than what we'd, we would expect. So normally, uh, when this word gune is translated wife, and it's the same word woman and wife, just the context tells you differently, 42 out of 46 times, so hitting right at like 90% of the time, there's a definite article and or a personal pronoun, which is not the case in our passage here. So could it be wives of deacons? Yes, technically. Uh, but really that's not the way that Greek does that, okay? Um, normally, okay? And usually it's context that you use to decide because it's the same word. Are we talking about wives or just women, right? Um, and so based on the construction, that's not how we see it elsewhere, okay? So what other options are? Well, that's easy because you look in the lexicon and it tells you that it could also just mean women, okay, uh, rather than wives. And if that's the case, then we're talking about female deacons, okay? And uh, this interpretation is not something that came up in the last hundred years in the 21st century or the 20th century. Uh, this interpretation goes as far back as Clements, who flourished from 150 to 215. Okay, so this is something that has antiquity uh, on its side, as does the other interpretation. Um, 
And if you look at the lists of men and women, you can see in the little chart that I have there, because I like charts mm -hmm. uh, and I like lists, okay, um, as my wife can attest. Um, so in 1 Timothy 3.8, the first one for the men, first characteristic, is serious. And the first one for the women is what? Yeah. Exactly the same thing, right? which is kind of what you would expect if you were looking at characteristics of men who are going to fill that role and women who are going to fill that role. You would expect them to have similar kind of character um, descriptions, right? Now, the second one for the men is not double-tongued, which has to do with speech. And the second one for the women is not slanderers, which also has to do with speech. The third one for the men, sorry, not addicted to much wine, okay? <laughs> Um, talking about moderation, uh, for, for the women, uh, temperate, also talking about moderation, but not specifically in relationship to wine, uh, which apparently the guys like more than the ladies there in Ephesus. Okay? Uh, so in terms of uh, the, the women there in uh, 1 Timothy 3.11, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, evidence to commend uh, thinking of those folks as female deacons. And as you go in the New Testament, you also have some other places, like Phoebe, who's called a diakonos in Romans chapter 16, right? Um, you also have a possibility of Atphia, who's mentioned in Philemon, and you also have a possibility of the deacons, who are mentioned in Philippians 1.1. Because when you have masculine plurals, the way that that works in Greek is the same as uh, French and German, or French and Spanish. Uh, so if you have a group of all men, it'll be masculine. If you have a group of men and women, it'll be masculine, plural, okay? And so if you have a masculine plural, you don't know if it's all men or men and women. Does that make sense? Okay? And so in Philippians 1.1, when it talks about the deacons, it's a masculine plural, and so you don't know if it's just talking about men or, or men and women. So there's some ambiguity. Um, and then as early as Pliny in, in the second century, we have female, female deacons mentioned by someone who has zero horses in this race. He's a pagan, okay? He's not Catholic, Methodist, Church of Christ, Baptist, okay? He is a pagan, doesn't know anything, so much so that he writes a letter to the Emperor Trajan and says, I don't know what to do with these Christians, okay? And he mentions um, some female deacons there. And it's early. It's about 112. He takes office in 111. He leaves in 113. We'll split the difference, okay? Around 112, so early in the second century, uh, we have extra canonical evidence of female female deacons. So that, that would not be a strange thing. And in the early church, you also have female deacons too. Okay, uh, the other passage that's probably the big focus of 1 Timothy is the chapter 2, 8 through 15. Um, and so I want to start again kind of broad, and then we'll kind of work through some of the individual um, features there. So um, I want to name some structural features and I'll use a fancy term and then not a fancy term. Okay, the fancy term is inclusio. Okay, the non-fancy term is bracket, <laughs> right? Kind of like bookends, okay? Uh, and a lot of times, what writers structure what they're writing, they let you know what the theme is by having a statement at the beginning and a statement at the end to let you know that stuff in the middle is about what we're talking about here at the introduction and the conclusion, okay? And we have a couple of inclusios here, okay? So in 2.9, we have a prepositional phrase with modesty in the first verse talking about the women. 
And in the very last verse, and in fact, the last two words in verse 15 are with modesty. Okay? Um, and so keep that in mind because we're going we're to talk about uh, the significance of that more. So uh, modesty is bracketing those verses of 9 through 15 about what we're talking about when we talk about the women here in chapter 2. Okay? The second inclusio we get is with quiet behavior. And it's a word, hesukia, there that I put in uh, italics there. It's in a prepositional phrase, in hesukia. And um, that word is also used earlier in chapter 2. And if you look at 1 Timothy 2.2, it says that we should pray for kings and everyone in high positions that we may lead. And depending on what your translation have, something like quiet and peaceable lives. Do you have something different? Any other options? Quiet and peaceable? Okay. Propriety. Huh? Propriety. Propriety, yeah. So, so it's talking about decorum, propriety, appropriate behavior, okay? Um, so peaceable, quiet. So, and that word is hesukia. Um, you get the adjective there in 2.2, in but then you get the noun in 2.11 and 2.12. So when it talks about women in 2.11, and it says, let a woman learn in Hesukia. Some of your translations probably have in silence, right? Which is not exactly what it's talking about. It's talking about modest, temperate kind of behavior. It's not what we get in the 1 Corinthians 14 passage, where it says, I don't permit a woman to speak, right? Talking about actual speaking here. It's talking about deportment, quiet behavior, okay? And then you get that same uh, phrase again at the end of verse 12. She is to be in Hesukia. Okay, so it, it seems strange to translate it, if your translation has this, silence in 11 and 12, when it's obvious from verse 2 that it's not talking about silence there, it's talking about, because you're praying, right? You're, you're praying for kings in different places that we may lead a quiet and, and peaceable life. Uh, it's not a, that Christians are walking around mute, right? But they're walking around with appropriate deportment, okay? A peaceable kind of life. Um, so, um, that's helpful, I think, to know just in terms of translation. So, uh, last bullet on the first page. So, key terms in this passage. Uh, there's an emphasis on modesty, okay? So, the very first verse that we read in verse 9 that talks about the women, notice all the pileup of words connected to modesty. I desire that the women adorn themselves in modest attire with modesty and moderation. It's almost hard to translate it in English because you have to come up with so many kinds of synonyms for modesty, moderate, moderation. Uh, it almost seems a little bit cumbersome, right? Um, but when you have something mentioned one, two, three, four times in the first verse, right? Then that kind of catches your attention that, hey, this is what we're talking about here. We're talking about modesty, folks. Right? So if I repeat something four times, it might be tedious to you. If I repeat something four times, it might be tedious to you. If I repeat something four times, it might be tedious to you. Okay? Right? And so four times it's been repeated. We're talking about modesty, ladies. Okay? Okay? So that's the very first thing that we read in talking about the women. So it's very clear that that's the main issue. Okay? Second, uh, Paul, in the very next verse, shows attention to the idea of modesty in his use of um, prepping, which 
it is fitting, it is appropriate. I don't know what, what, your, what your translation has there, but it's also talking about what is culturally appropriate there, okay? So, you're asking, kind of interesting, but not super interesting, what's the, what's the, what's the main point here? What's kind of the so what? Here's the, here's the so what. In other words, this is why you listen for the last three and a half minutes, okay? So, um, and if you didn't listen during the last three minutes, you still get it, okay? So look at the number three under the last bullet. The importance of Safrasune. The term means temperance. This is the a term that's used in verse nine and the very last word in verse 15, okay? The term means temperance, but it also connotes chastity and self-restraint. In other words, it takes into the full range of behavior, right? From sexual behavior like chastity to self-restraint in terms of eating or drinking or something like that, right? Um, it was the preeminent virtue of Greek women. It is mentioned more frequently than any other quality on women's tombstones, okay? Uh, we have some seats. There's one there, there's one there, there's one there for folks standing in the back. Okay. Um, so, imagine this. You have a beloved wife, um, daughter, a sister, mom, who, who has died. And you want everyone to know how wonderful this woman was, okay? And so you're gonna pay money to have it engraved in stone, okay? And so when we look at those gravestone engravings, the word that occurs more than any other word to describe, wow, she was amazing, is Safrasune, right? So in terms of volume, like, I'm driving in the car, I have a knob that allows me to turn up the volume and stuff like that. I don't have one in my Bible, okay? But if I did, the volume gets turned up here. This is a big deal, right? This is a hot button kind of issue. This is the preeminent feminine virtue and something's wrong with it, at least with some of the folks there, right? So if you're pushing, uh, this, is, this is the biggest button you could be pushing, right? if you want to agitate, right? Okay, so that's important to know because if we're trying to hear the text with first century kind of ears, we need to know culturally how important is that, right? Well, culturally, it's at the top of the list, pretty, pretty close. You, you, you might make some other arguments that something else comes close to that. Uh, so maybe it's number two. Uh, so number one and number two, Safrasune, moderation, modesty, and that's the issue here with the women. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit, working maybe a little bit verse by verse. So rather than uh, kind of broadly, what are the main themes, what are the structural features? So beginning in verse eight, it mentions some men, and it says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So the question is, why mention men and anger and quarreling, okay? So if you read through 1 Timothy, there's some probable causes, one might even say a lot of evidence for men quarreling, okay? That would explain, hey, stop that in uh, 2.8, okay? And what I'm imagining here is what I call attack prayers. You may have experienced one of these prayers where someone gets up to pray and all of a sudden you're thinking, 
I'm not sure I can say amen to this <laughs> because they're making some strong political point or they're attacking someone personally in the congregation and you're thinking, that's really not appropriate, <laughs> right? So there's some kind of attack prayer stuff going on with the guys. And Paul says, not appropriate. That is not appropriate, okay? You're raising holy hands when, when you pray and that is not holy hands kind of prayer behavior, right? Okay. So. Uh, as we read through uh, 1 Timothy, we get a sense of what that looks like on the ground. Okay, So, uh, chapter 1 and verse 4. They pay attention to myths and endless genealogies that promote useless speculation. 1 verse 6. Some, while going astray, turn away to fruitless discussion. 4-7. Avoid godless and silly myths. 6, 4 through 5, he is sick with a morbid craving for debates, disputes about words, you get the argument kind of stuff going on there, right? From which come envy, strife, slanders, naming people in prayers, okay? Evil <coughs> suspicions, wranglings of people who have corrupt minds and lack the truth, thinking that godliness is a mean of gain. 620. Avoid the godless, empty chatter and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So ample evidence that there's a major problem with false teaching and argument. And in 2 verse 8, Paul connects that primarily to guys. Okay? Uh, there's some guys in Ephesus that have a problem with that. He calls them out. Okay? So verses 9 through 15, we have seven verses devoted to women. And we had one devoted to guys, okay? So why do we have these seven verses devoted to women? And much like when we looked at verse 8, and there was something specific going on in Ephesus that makes Paul call out the men who are doing these attack prayers, right? Raising holy hands in prayer uh, with, with quarreling. Uh, I think there's something going on in Ephesus with women that help us understand chapter 2. So here's my suspicion. My suspicion is if chapter 5 came before chapter 2, we'd have less problems with chapter 2 because we would have read chapter 5. Okay? Uh, second, if we read chapter 5 in addition to chapter 2, even if it didn't come before, we would have less problems with chapter 2. And why do I, why do I say that? Because I think when we read chapter 5, we're going to find some things that sound a whole lot like the stuff in chapter 2 that make you think, oh, I can see why he says that in chapter 2 given the more information that we have when we look at chapter 5. Okay? So go ahead and turn to the next page. We're going to come back to chapter 2 and do the verse-by-verse -verse work through it. But now this is an excursus. Okay? This is an excursus. Uh, and so what you, want, what you might want to do and this is easier if you have your Bible, but harder if you have your text. If you have your Bible, you can have fingers in chapter 2 and finger in chapter 5, and you just kind of flip back and forth. You really can't do that on the devices, okay? Uh, but you can have two devices up, maybe, or you can have split screen or something like that. But we're going to be going back and forth between chapter 5 and chapter 2, okay? So however you want to do it, that's what we're going to do. Fair warning, okay? So here's the question. What evidence is there to link the women in chapter 2 with a specific problem in 1 Timothy? 
In other words, if I'm saying that chapter 2 is explained by some of the stuff going on in Ephesus, and chapter 5 tells us some more information about women, are there actually some things that correlate? Okay? And so you get to decide. Okay? So here's the evidence that I found. That was my suspicion. And then I went searching. Okay? And this is what I found. Okay? So, one, immodest expenditures. In chapter 2, Paul cautions women not to adorn themselves with braids, gold, pearls, or very expensive clothing for specific luxury kind of items. Okay? Correspondingly, now we're going over chapter 5, Paul describes the young widows in verse 6 with the verb spatalon, which means to indulge oneself beyond the bounds of propriety, to live luxuriously, voluptuously. So, what I think is we get in chapter 2 specific examples of what living luxuriously and voluptuously in generic terms means in the culture of Ephesus. It means braids, gold, pearls, and very expensive clothing. Okay? And these younger widows are, are what? They're on the dole. They're being supported by the church, and they're spending it on what? Luxury items. Okay? And not just luxury items, but luxury items that are immodestly expensive. Okay? Um, okay? So, number two, good deeds. In chapter two, Paul remarks that a proper woman adorns herself with good deeds. So you want to know what a proper woman wears? She wears good deeds. Okay? In contrast, between the younger widows and the real widows in 1 Timothy 5, Paul affirms that a real widow should be attested for her good deeds and, and be devoted to every good deed. So with number two, we have a strong verbal parallel between the two passages. We have the phrase actually repeated, right? Which is the kind of evidence that I really like to find. Okay? <laughs> the exact words. Um, it's like, oh, I wonder if there's anything in chapter 5 about good deeds. And it's like, yes, twice. Okay? Um, number three, quiet behavior. This one's a little more complex. Hang with me. So, if Paul is concerned with how the women are behaving and speaking in, in chapter 2, remember you get that uh, in Hesukia in quiet behavior repeated twice in verse 11 verse 12. So, if Paul is concerned with how the women are behaving and speaking, is there any evidence of unacceptable behavior among the younger widows in chapter 5? So what do I do? I go searching in chapter 5, right? And so I'm, I'm looking for immodest, not peaceable, quiet kind of behavior. So um, in the language of 1 Timothy 2, do the younger widows exhibit a lack of quiet behavior? There's at least three descriptions of behavior that would not be thought of as quiet behavior in the culture of the first century. Number one, the younger widows are described as busybodies who run about from house to house. That is not living in a peaceable kind of way, right? Going about from house to house, spreading slander, gossip, whatever, okay? Um, two, um, their behavior has been so scandalous that it's provided others an opportunity to revile the church. And three, Paul issues a command to avoid luxurious living in order that the younger widows may be without reproach. So each of these three descriptions is connected with the absence of quiet behavior 
in other New Testament texts. In other words, Paul contrasts Hesukia with busybodies. So if you want to know, hey, is there any actual connection between Hesukia and these three things I've named? Yes, there are. So Hesukia and busybodies, you get that in First Thess- uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, 3. Okay. Uh, the verb live quietly is parallel to mind your own business, okay, rather than going about from house to house in 1 Thessalonians 4. And those who learn quietly earn the respect versus folks in 1 Timothy 5 who have earned the reproach right, uh, of outsiders in 1 Thessalonians. So yes, we have evidence of behavior that is not quiet behavior that is connected with Hesuchia in other places in Paul. Okay, we're halfway there. Three down, three to go. Number four, problems with teaching. Okay, so we get teaching mentioned there in chapter two. Paul writes, I don't permit a woman to teach. Okay, is there any evidence that false teaching is a problem among women in Ephesus? Or is Paul talking about women teaching in general? Okay, so as we mentioned before, there's ample evidence that the church is under attack from false teaching. I already mentioned 17 times Paul uses words connected with teaching. But is there any connection with younger widows? Is there any false teaching connected with them? So if you look at 5.13, Paul describes the younger widows as saying what they should not, a phrase that is associated with false teaching in Titus 1, and it also appears that the false teachers are using the homes of women as outposts for false teaching. So let's look at the 2 Timothy 3.6-7 passage. 2 Timothy 3.6-7. I know I said we're only going to be in chapter 2 and chapter 5, and you can toggle back and forth. Uh, but we're going on an exploration here, right? So over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, so I'm going to pick up there in verse 5. Um, avoid such people, okay? For among them are those who make their way into households and they capture what? Weak women, okay? Burdened by sin and swayed by various impulses. So some of the false teachers are using the houses of women as outposts for their false teaching. So we get a direct connection between women and false teaching here in this passage here in uh, 2 Timothy 3. Does that make sense? Okay. Back to our um, handout here, number five. Deception. So um, you want to guess what I did? I got out my concordance, and I looked up the Greek words for deception, deceive, because what do, I, what do I want? I want to find them in chapter 5, right? So I have this connection between chapter 2 and chapter 5 because chapter 2 says Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So is there any evidence of women being deceived? And so what did I find? Nothing in terms of the direct word deceive or deception. What was I? Disappointed. Uh, did I give up? No, I didn't. Um, so here's what I did find. Okay, so uh, twice Paul uses the language of deception, treating Adam and Eve. Adam was not deceived; the woman was deceived, became a transgressor. Okay, so what evidence is there that the younger widows have been deceived? As I mentioned, Paul uses neither the verb deceive nor the noun deception in in First Timothy five, much to my uh, disappointment. However. It seems likely that the younger widows who have, quote, followed after Satan can be described as deceived. So would that be a description of someone who deceived? 
is deceived. They followed after Satan. Yeah, I think that would qualify. Right? Okay. Um, and finally, number six, bearing children. So what do we do with this phrase in chapter 2 and verse 15 where it says, she will be saved through the bearing of children? Doesn't that just sound like nothing like the gospel? Right? If, if a woman wants to go to heaven, she must bear a child. You don't bear a child, you're going to hell. That sounds like nothing in the gospel, okay? So what is going on with that passage then, right? So, interestingly enough, uh, the verb that appears in 1 Timothy 5, when the younger widows are admonished to marry, bear children, and manage their households, uh, is very similar to the noun uh, that you see used in chapter 2. Okay? It's the verb form of the noun. And, and you can see, even looking at the transliteration there, the words look very similar, except for the endings, verb versus noun ending. So in other words, it's highly unlikely that Paul in chapter 2 is saying that a woman must bear a child to be saved. If you don't bear a child, you're going to hell. No, that's not what he's saying. Uh, rather, the word bearing of children that Paul uses there in chapter 2 is a compressed way of saying, pay attention to your domestic responsibilities, which is explained when we look at the verb that's used in chapter 5. Okay? So, um, I've given you six things, be there in a moment, I've given you six things that look like things that are going on in Ephesus chapter 5 that have some parallels to what's going on in, in, in chapter 2. Okay? So, let's go ahead and pause, pause there and see what questions you have. Yeah, so is there, is there any indication in the Greek that this is saying she'll be saved or preserved through her own childbearing or just childbearing generally? It's literally, uh, she will be saved through bearing of children if she remains in faith and love and holiness with sophrosune, with temperance. that theory then that I've heard, like connected to Artemis uh -huh. to save women in childbearing and Paul saying you'll like physically you won't die in childbearing if your faith is in Christ rather than having kids go to save Right, people. so there's some, some, some folks that think that's talking about Mary who bears the Christ and we're all saved through the bearing of a child, Christ, okay? And there's some folks that think that it's maybe connected to Artemis who in some descriptions of her is a, a goddess who does care about childbirth. Um, and safe childbirth, uh, and uh, getting 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 pregnant. Um, I, th I think both those are possibilities. Um, obviously, the one that I gave you is the one that I prefer um, for two reasons. One, it makes sense. Uh, and then two, there's a direct connection in chapter five where Paul is using that same word to say, pay attention to your domestic responsibilities. Um, and that seems to fit versus going around being busybodies from house to house, going around buying expensive clothing and stuff like that. No, pay attention to your domestic responsibilities. Don't go around trying to be the fashion plate of Ephesus. Don't go around being busybodies. Don't go around having your house be an outpost for false teaching. Pay attention to your domestic responsibilities. So, yes, are those possibilities? Certainly. Will you see those? Certainly. Um, I like the one that I gave you. <laughs> there and then there. Isn't the, I mean, the anchor of Sapsune and Piety 
here seems to be anchored in the beginning with being a community that is a respectable community uh, in the religious landscape. But like the Jews had uh, fulfilled the compromise to pray for the right. emperor rather than honor the emperor. Exactly. So, so you see that in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, pray for kings and people in high positions that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. Okay, And you also see it in 315 where it says, um, I'm, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. So I'm teaching you how to behave in the church and how to behave in culture. Um, yeah. Okay. Question back there. Right, so the so for me, the Mary one seems like a pretty far one, right? Absolutely. Because we haven't been talking about Mary. Okay, right. because it's possible, sure. Uh, and the Artemis one is a little more closely connected to the context. It's not um, as direct of a mention because it doesn't mention Artemis or some title of Artemis that we can kind of connect with that. Because sometimes you get allusions uh, to um, Greco-Roman phrases. I mean, Paul... Uh, quotes pagans periodically. Um, he quotes Menander, Eratus, Epimenides. Uh, bad company ruins good, good, good morals. Um, Menander there. Okay. So it's yes. Paul and Luke do quote pagan folk and allude to pagan folks and mention pagan things like food sacrifice to idols. Right. So it's not impossible. Um, but like I said, I, I I gave you the one that makes the most sense to me and why it makes the most sense to me. Now, that being said, I do think the environment of Ephesus and Artemis does play a role. And when we get to verse 13, I'm going to explain, I think, what that, what that means. And I'll tell a little bit about Artemis and how that affects the culture of Ephesus. Okay, so now we're going back to the verse by verse, the page 2 one there. Um, and I want to talk about... verse 13 and 14, on how the Old Testament is being used there when it says Adam was formed first and not Eve. Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was, right? Okay, that mentioned to the Old Testament. So uh, there are different ways that the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Broadly speaking, you're going to find two that show up a lot. These are the two that I'm giving you. Is that an exhaustive list? No, but it's representative of what you'll mostly find. Okay, sometimes... The Old Testament is quoted or alluded to, and it's a proof text, okay? So, in, in Romans chapter 4, Paul is making an argument that both Jews and Gentiles come to God on the basis of faith, okay? And he quotes Genesis um, 15, uh, 6 there, okay? Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then, you know... If we're in the 21st century, it's kind of a mic drop kind of thing. And you're saying, uh, why? Well, because when it says Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, in verse 15, when is Abraham circumcised? Chapter 17. 
So when it says Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, was he uncircumcised or circumcised? He was uncircumcised. So both the uncircumcised and the circumcised come to God on the basis of faith. Okay? And it's a proof text. Paul is arguing that, and here's proof in the text. Right? So that's sometimes how it's used. And that could be one way that the Adam and Eve stuff is being used. Here's a, you want to know? Let's go back to creation. Look at Adam and Eve. Adam was formed first, and it's a proof text kind of thing. Right? Okay? So that's one option. Okay? Second option uh, is, is an example or an illustration, an analogy. Okay? And uh, you get that a lot. Uh, probably the most extensive one is in uh, chapter 10 of uh, 1 Corinthians that goes on for several verses. Uh, probably most pertinent for us is Eve is mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once here and once someplace else. So let's go look at that once someplace else. Okay? So the once someplace else is 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Thank you. And I'm going to skip down to verse 3, even though it starts kind of at verse 1. Uh, but I, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So he's comparing the whole congregation to Eve, or at least people who are going astray, right? So it's not just females, not just males. If you behave in a going-away kind of way, you're, you're behaving like Eve. And what happened when Eve did that? Well, we had the fall, right? Okay, so don't behave in an Eve kind of way. For if someone comes, here's his explanation, and preaches another Jesus than the one that we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you are submitting it to it readily enough. Okay? So if you're doing those kinds of things, you're behaving like an Eve. Don't be an Eve. Okay? And that's said to the whole congregation. Now, if, going back to the First Timothy 2 passage, if it's being used as an example, okay, then the message would be watch out for the eaves at Ephesus. Okay? Watch out for these eaves that are being deceived by the false teachers. Right? Don't be an eve and don't be deceived by eaves that are going around being deceived by false teachers. Okay? So um, let me say something about the first language there and something about the context uh, at Ephesus. Okay, so Ephesus is known for a number of things. One of the things it's known for is being a place of magic. And so if you look at Acts chapter 19, there's a bunch of magic stuff there. Uh, the other stuff is it's the birthplace of Artemis. Okay? Uh, Artemis uh, is one of a twin. Uh, she, uh, along with her brother Apollo, uh, were the children of Zeus and one of his many affairs, um, Leto. Okay? Zeus and Hera are at the top of the pantheon. They're married. Zeus wanders frequently. Okay? This was one of Zeus' wanderings. Got Plato pregnant. Two children were born, Artemis and Apollo, very famous gods. Um, but Artemis is born first. So that makes her what? Better. Right? Okay? Because you're born first. Okay? Um, and so uh, you also have this massive temple there uh, to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a hundred and 40-something meters long. Uh, what was it? 142 meters. So that's like longer than a football field, right? And 73 meters wide, so 
almost as wide as a football field. I mean, it's huge. That's why it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was by far the largest temple in Rome, Greece, Asia. Um, and Artemis dominated the culture of Ephesus. Why? She's born there. That's kind of her hometown, right? And um, if you kind of mess with the hometown heroes, that gets the people excited. And if you look in chapter 19, um, some folks get excited about economics because Demetrius riles up the silversmiths and says, hey, this Paul guy is saying that Artemis isn't really a god and we're going to lose lots of money. Why lots of money? Because people travel to Ephesus because Artemis is there, the temple's there, okay? And they're not going to buy our souvenirs to bring back home, right? Okay? Um, and so they start shouting, great is what? Artemis of the Ephesians, okay? People hear this and it's like, hey, something's going on. So <laughs> everyone goes down to the theater and how long do they shout for? Two hours, or about two hours, okay? That's a long time to shout. And if you read the text, it says some, some people didn't know why they were there and some people did. I mean, why are we here? I don't know, but something's going on with Artemis and we're gonna go to our hometown hero, right? So, you know, if you come to LA, you don't slander the Lakers, you go to Dallas, you don't slander the Cowboys, right, okay? And this person's come to town and hey, this person's slandered. The town clerk, Demetrius, says, no, Paul is not a slanderer. He's not a blasphemer of Artemis, and he hasn't uh, done anything bad in the temple. So stop. You're in danger of writing. If you have something, take it to proconsuls, and we have courts. They, they can handle this. Okay? But you can see how people uh, get excited when you mess with the hometown hero, who is Artemis. Okay? And she dominates the culture, administration, uh, obviously uh, religion, economics of the city, okay? So if you live in Ephesus and you're carrying around coins, the city uh, of Ephesus issues coins and guess who shows up on their coins? Artemis and the temple of Artemis. And so in one you have uh, Ephesus personified as a woman and around her head is the temple. In another you have <laughs> Ephesus personified as a woman in one hand is the temple and in, in, in the other hand is Artemis, okay? Why? Because that's good advertising. When your coins go out, people go to different cities. It's like, oh, you know what? We should make a trip to Ephesus sometime. Because I've heard that temple is just amazing, right? Okay. So that's good advertising. But even the, even the coins in your pocket are dominated by Artemis, right? Um, in, in terms of the administrative life, there are uh, 23 different positions named for people who work in the temple of Artemis. Um, so you're going to have lots of workers there. Uh, the Temple of Artemis also functioned as the bank uh, for the city. So there's another economic aspect, another administrative aspect. They had a whole month-long festival uh, in April that was devoted to the celebration of Artemis, where there were games, banquets, processions, sacrifices. Uh, her statues carried around regularly. There's priestesses. Okay, and and so with Artemis, you have a female who is thought uh, to be superior to the male, who is exalted. And so there's a lot of, well, yeah, girls are better than boys, because look at Artemis, right? Okay? I mean, that's the culture that they, that they grow up in. So um, now let's go take a look, take a little excursion again. Okay, there's a little excursions. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, because I think what we get in 1 Timothy 2 is half of what we get in 1 Corinthians 11, okay? So let's go take a look at what the other half might look like, okay? So if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 through 12, 
Uh, it's also making an argument about creation, and you can uh, look at verse 8, and it talks there about Adam was formed, uh, uh, that the woman came from, from man, okay? So that same kind of creation argument there, okay? Um, moving down to verses 11 and 12, and I'm reading off the handout here, okay? Paul begins, nevertheless, which is a word that means true, but. In other words, what I've said about male-female is true, but I need to add some more here, okay? So, good. Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. I'm going to take the nots out of that and, and, and say it positively, okay? There's mutuality between male and female. There's mutuality between male and female. And you might be thinking, okay, so what does Paul mean when he says there's mutuality between male and female? Fortunately, verse 12 begins with a for, which means he's going to give us an explanation, okay? And then the next word is as, that that explanation is going to come in the form of an analogy, okay? So for, as woman was made from man, back to verse 8, right? So now man is born of woman, okay? So let me, let me kind of unpack that. So, a uh, woman comes from man, and I'm going to do it in kind of extreme kind of ways, and then we'll uh, bring it together. So, a uh, woman comes from man, so that means men are better than women, okay? But then, the second half is, now man is born of woman. So, over here, these folks say, I will grant you, the first woman came from man. The next 8 billion people came from women, and we went 8 billion to 1. Okay? And Paul says, no. Women came first from man, so men are better. No. There's mutuality between male and female. We went 8 billion to 1. No. There's mutuality between male and female. Paul says no to both of those. Paul says there's mutuality between male and female, right? For as woman came from man, so man now is born of woman. And what's the very last phrase in verse 12? All these things are from God. God set up creation so that we could see the mutuality between male and female. And so folks who go around championing, men are better than women. No. Women are better than men. No. There's mutuality between male and female, and God set up creation so we could see that mutuality. Okay. So, you get arguments about precedence, right? Um, woman comes from man, okay? Um, but you don't get the other half in um, 1 Timothy 2, right? So why do you just get the one half about, hey, remember, the first woman came from man? Because they live in Ephesus, where everything is about women superior, women came first, women are amazing, okay? And they need the other half to balance that out, okay? And so Paul says, hey, all you women that are being not sophrosune, okay, you need to remember the other half of this, that woman comes from man, okay? Uh, to bring kind of balance to all the women are awesome and amazing and superior stuff that you hear over here with Ephesus. Does that make sense? So I think what's hard is you're only getting one half of the story between male-female there, 
based on creation, right? All this is from God, okay? God set up creation so that you could see the mutuality of it. But I think you're getting it because of the overemphasis in the way that the balance is kind of tilted. And I probably shouldn't have done that because it looks weird, right? Like I'm a balance. Uh, but the balance is way tilted over uh, to the women are amazing in Ephesus. And so to kind of make that balance again, uh, then we also need to remember, oh, by the way, a woman comes from man, right? To bring some kind of balance to that. So don't be, don't be uppity. Okay, uh, and then in verse 15, uh, we've already talked about uh, the instruction to the younger widows where that same phrase is used, and I think that it means um, when you bear children, you're having a well-run family there, and I'm not the only one that uh, thinks that. Okay, so let's see. We made it through page one, page two, page three, I think that's pretty good. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and take some questions. And when, when we come back, what I want to do is to uh, give some options for the way that folks have read the First Timothy 2 passage that we just spent a little bit of time looking at, right? Um, what are the ways that folks have read that passage? And kind of talk about pluses and minuses. And then I've got some stuff on the husband of one wife and some female elders, uh, if, if you want to talk about that too, okay? So questions about what we've kind of done so far here. So we're hearing one side of the conversation, like on a telephone, right? Right. Basically. And, and so if, if we're trying to understand what's going on here, you kind of have to understand what's happening in the culture, obviously, what you're doing. So as I understand it, um, you know, the, the structure of Roman society was, you know, property and status. And, and the, can you speak to that? So is Paul talk, talking less about uh, how this needs to be and, and more about how we fit into a society that is structured in this hierarchy and, like, if I understand, I've heard this argument that that there was some danger that um, they could get in trouble, like big trouble, uh, if they mess with the social structure. And he's saying, "Hey, we, we got to fit in and then influence society, or something along that line." Does that, does that make sense, or am I right? Rome was actually pretty patient with folks and, and gave a lot of latitude, as long as you didn't upset society. Okay. And that's talking about religion, culture, economics, politics, okay? So if you're trying to overthrow the government, Rome's going to be interested. If you're affecting the economy, Rome is going to be interested. If you're upsetting the culture and there's riots, Rome is going to be interested, right? Um, so as long as you're fitting in, that's fine, okay? But if you don't, then yes, there's there's going to be attention on Rome, Rome's part. But Rome's actually pretty flexible. Uh, there's a lot of different structures in terms of the way that different governments are set up. So for instance, in Macedonia, uh, they're, they're called polytarchs. Okay, we, we can call them polytarchs there. And Rome's, Rome's okay with that, right? We'll call them other titles in other places, okay? Um, so yeah, those are gonna be the things that catch Rome's attention. Um, there isn't, at this point, kind of top-down uh, persecution uh, where Rome is out to get Christians. It's more a bottom up. So it's a local, sporadic, and from below. 
So from below means it's coming from citizens who are saying, hey, look what these Christians are doing, like you find in uh, Acts chapter 19. Hey, look what Paul's doing. He's like ruining our economy here, right? Uh, so it's from, from below. It's, it's local in that what happens at Ephesus doesn't mean that's going to happen over in Philippi or Rome or Jerusalem, okay? It's local. It's not empire-wide. And it's sporadic. Uh, things might go well for a while, uh, and then they might go bad. And you might have a new governor that comes in that decides, hey, I'm going to prosecute these folks. And the past one, they weren't prosecuted, right? The, gov the governor overlooked it and didn't care about it. So local, sporadic, and from below up until about 150 uh, with Decius, when you then have it come from above. And it's the, it's the emperor from above. It's empire-wide. Everyone needs to sacrifice because we're going to war and we want to win, okay? Uh, and it's not sporadic. It's everywhere you need to have evidence of having sacrificed. And so that's a, that's a major change there. One of the, if I heard you right, one of the subtleties of the argument is on the one hand we're appealing to propriety from a household female behavior standpoint, which seems to be broader than that, right? it's a, sort of an appeal to cultural. On the other, the females in Ephesus, if they are inflated by the prominence of female roles mm -hmm. in the Temple of Artemis, and we only get half the Eve discussion and not the other half. We've got two sort of uh, cultural impacts there in terms of what is propriety. Yeah, so you know, when we think in our own congregations, what's, what we've experienced, what, what's always been done, uh, what we've seen, what we've heard is really powerful, right? And when it's something different from that, uh, it just feels weird, okay? So I did study abroad in 2008 in um South America, okay? And in the congregation there, um, they took very seriously and very literally greet one another with a holy kiss, okay? You did not enter the congregation without greeting your fellow congregants with a, with a holy kiss, okay? Um, that's not how I grew up, okay? And that felt weird. And I confess the first Sunday I was a little bit afraid, thinking, I'm the faculty member, I need to set a good example for the students and not, you know, freak out or anything. Uh, but I'm kind of weirded out by this. I'm kind of weirded out by the whole Greek one, the holy kiss. But then Sunday church, I find out, okay, you're just kind of kissing the air uh, beside their cheeks. It's not really that weird. Um, I, can, I can do this. But did that explain how I felt before uh, I actually saw what it was and that it wasn't as threatening as I thought it was going to be? Um, no, I was, I was kind of anxious about it because it was different than how I grew up, right? And so those cultural, thing, those cultural things matter. And I think you get something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where uh, Paul is telling women to wear head coverings when they pray and prophesy. But notice in verse 2, Paul says, I commend you because you remember the traditions. Okay, as I read down in verses 3 through 16, it doesn't sound like they're being commended, <laughs> right? Uh, so what is it they're, they're being praised for? I think they're being praised for trying to live out 
the tradition of there's no more Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, which they heard at their baptism, right? Um, but Paul says the way you're doing this is in a way that is culturally disruptive. So I commend you for trying to live out there's no more male and female in, in Christ Jesus. Good job. But don't do it in a way that is culturally, he uses the word shame, shameful three times. Uh, verse 3 and I think twice in verse 4 or verse 4 and twice in verse 5. Um, don't, don't do things that would be culturally shameful. Uh, find a way to live it out uh, that's culturally appropriate. Okay? The example that I give to my students, which is, which is not a good example, but it's the best I have, is I imagine going to a church on Sunday morning, okay? And as I walk into this church, uh, someone greets me at the door and says, welcome to the First Avenue uh, Church. We're an egalitarian church. Glad to have you this morning. I say, thank you. It's nice to be here this morning. Uh, can you tell me where the restroom is? Yes, go down the hall and turn to the right. So I, so I walk down the hall. I turn to the right. I go in the door, and, and, and there's a woman in there. And I say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm new here. They told me the restroom was this way. And she says, no. At the first church, we're in the Galatarian uh, church. Have a seat. <laughs> OK, that's a little weird for me. OK? Um, the whole co-ed restroom kind of thing, even if you're trying to live out this egalitarian thing, uh, that's, that's different from what I've experienced. And it's probably not going to communicate as well as we might could with folks who are just coming in from the culture, right? Uh, and having women with uncovered heads at that time was not communicating uh, well, right? So, yes, I think Paul is attentive to those cultural kinds of things, um, but he's also attentive, attentive to trying to live out what it means to be no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female in, in Christ Jesus, uh, which is not always easy, right? It's not always easy. Okay, we have a 15-minute break. Uh, when, when, when you come back, uh, we'll do the last half. We'll t talk about different interpretations for chapter two, uh, female elders, husband and wife kind of. For those who, for those who came back, uh, welcome back. Uh, it's uh, 3.15. We'll go to whenever we finish, um, which doesn't mean 5.15. <laughs> uh, but if we finish early, that's, that, that's fine too. So what I would like to do... is to give you three options for, for the way that First uh, Timothy 2 has been interpreted and try, and try and get some strengths and weaknesses of both. In other words, if, if I'm a number one, what am I going to say, hey, you should be a number one? And if I'm not a number one, what are the things I'm going to say, nah, number one's argument doesn't work, okay? So, so I'm going to try and play fair and get both sides, okay? So if you're looking at the fourth page that has three options for the interpretation there, okay? Um, one option is if you read uh, verses uh, 8 through 15, um, especially the passage about the women, is it gives a, a rule for all time. You want to know how men should behave, you want to know how women should behave. It, it gives us rules for all time, telling us this is what it means to be a man, this is what it means to be a woman. Okay? Um, pluses. Okay? Paul's instructions don't allow women to teach or have authority over men. That's a, that's a pretty clear statement. We like clear statements, okay? Number two, there's an appeal to creation. If you want to know what it means to be male and female, let's go back and look at creation. There's appeal to Adam and Eve, okay? Um, 
Number three, they argue for a hierarchical relationship between men and women, primarily based on the phrase, Adam was created first. That shows men are better than women, okay? Because Adam was created first, okay? What are the problems with being a number one, okay? Or people who don't want to be a number one, what would, what would they say? Uh, it's difficult to consistently apply verses 8, 9, 12, and 15 as rules for all time. In other words, are we reading verse 8? Every time men pray, they have to raise hands, and that's a rule for all time. Verse 9, uh, women don't have gold, braided hair, pearls, or expensive clothing. That's a rule for all time. Uh, verse 12, uh, women aren't to teach. That's a rule for all time. Verse 15, women must bear a child to be saved. That's a rule for all time. Do we read those other verses in that literal rule for all time kind of way? It doesn't seem like it. Then why would we read verses 11 and 12 as rules for all time? Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, number two, um, if men should occupy positions of authority based on creation, in other words, Adam was created first, that means men are better than women, and that tells us what it means to be male and female, then there's a whole lot of difficulties with modern application. In other words, there are women who fill virtually every position of leadership in our culture. We have women Supreme Court justices, doctors, professors, managers, voters, senators, lawyers, umpires, counselors, engineers, vice presidents, vice presidents school principals, teachers, architects, mayors, judges. I mean, just keep on going. There are a lot of places where women exercise authority. And if it is from creation that, no, men are over women. That's how male and female are constructed. Then we're doing a lot of things wrong, okay? Uh, third, um, verse 2, verse 8, uh, men raise holy hands and don't um, pray with quarreling and arguing, uh, seems to apply to a specific problem with men at Ephesus. And if verse 8 applies to a specific problem with men at Ephesus, wouldn't it make sense that 9 through 15 apply to specific problems with women at Ephesus? Uh, there are other places in the New Testament and the Old Testament where women lead or teach. Uh, one of the handouts that I give to my students is, here's 36 passages where women are leading and teaching, and here are two passages where it says they don't. Okay, so what do we do with this 36 and 2 here, right? Okay. Um, and then when, when it says that Adam um, was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, is that saying something about the nature of male and female? In other words, does this appeal to creation mean that all women are by nature more gullible than men? Does that fit with your experience? That just because they're male, just because they're female, <coughs> women are going to be more gullible. They're going to be deceived. Does that fit your experience? Or have you known men that were gullible? Or women were, that were especially savvy and wise? Okay. Um, it doesn't fit with the text either. Um, the lady that saves her husband from David. Uh, Abigail? There's several times that women are the more yeah. rational, reasonable. So it's not just our culture and our experience that text reflects on it as well. Sure. Okay, number two. Uh, these are specific instructions for a specific problem. Okay? So since 1 Timothy 2.8 seems to refine respond to a particular problem with men at Ephesus, it seems likely that 9 through 15 respond to specific problems with women at Ephesus. And we can easily apply verses 8, 
9, 12, and 15 on the level of principles. In other words, men, when you pray, do it in a holy way. Okay? Uh, verse 9, women, exercise modesty in your expenditures and how you, how you uh, dress. Uh, verse, verse 15, uh, take care of your domestic household responsibilities. Manage your household well. Okay? So, but what about verse 12? What about that one? If you apply that on the level of principle. If we had problems with immodest, bossy women teaching false doctrine, then we would tell the women, don't teach or be bossy, which is what Paul says, right? But we don't have that problem. The principle is stop immodest and bossy behavior as well as false teaching. So such behavior today would evoke a similar response whether you're male or female, and you can see the terms that describe modest women also describe modest men in the footnote there. In fact, Jesus condemns any disciple, male or female, who behaves in an overbearing way. That isn't a male or female kind of thing. Any leader should not behave in an overbearing kind of way. Okay? Uh, there seems to be a connection between the things that we hear about the women in 1 Timothy 2 and the younger widows that we hear in chapter 5. In other words, there's some context there at Ephesus that explains the kinds of things that are said to the women in chapter 2. Uh, the appeal to creation in chapter 2 functions as an illustration. So beware of the eaves at Ephesus. Okay? Don't, don't be like one of those eaves and watch out for those eaves that are spreading false teaching. So it's been used as an illustration, not a proof text. Uh, and there aren't any problems with those 36 passages that show women teaching or leading. Okay? Now, what's the problem with being in number two? Uh, the opponents would argue that 1 Corinthians 14 doesn't fit with this interpretation, where it says women keep silence. Right? And they think that the argument in verses 13 and 14, this appeal to pre-fall creation, is very decisive. Adam was formed first. That tells us how male-female should be, should be structured. Option number three. You said, I don't want to be number one, I don't want to be number two. Okay, well, here's another option. Just so you know, threes are not very popular, right? Because everyone who wants to kind of restrict uh, wants you to join their side, everyone wants to expand, wants you to join their side, and so if you pick number three, nobody likes you, okay? Um, but third option. Uh, there's diversity in, in the New Testament on this issue. In other words, if you traveled around in the first century world, you might find some churches that were more egalitarian. You might find some more that had uh, structural hierarchical kinds of things. Uh, okay? So um, these people say, hey, I've looked at all the passages, and I can't fit them all in one um, format or in another format. Okay? So uh, not all the New Testament passages affirm or restrict the roles of women. Yes, there are passages where women are doing stuff, but there are also some passages where it says they, they shouldn't. And maybe the churches were in process of working it out, and there was diversity on this issue. Okay? Uh, the New Testament is diverse on some issues. The attitude of Christians to government, right? Honor the emperor on the one hand, and the portrayal of Rome in the book of Revelation as a prostitute with blood flowing from her mouth not as honorable as you might think, right? Um, or metaphors for salvation, okay? So you get a grace, you get forgiveness of sin, redemption, ransom, reconciliation, atonement, propitiation, expiation, I mean, um, born again. I mean, we can just kind of keep going. There's a lot of different ways to talk about salvation, okay? Uh, attitudes towards slavery. Um, difference between slaves obey your masters and 
what you see in the book of Revelation, where slaves are described as human souls, and what you see in Fleeman with Onesimus, who's now a brother. So there's some diverse attitudes towards slavery there. And perhaps the church is still in the process of working out this issue. If you look at there's no more Jew, Gentile, slave, female, female, you get uh, race, class, and gender. Okay, there's a whole lot being done on Jew-Gentile race, which is not to say race got solved in the first century, because obviously we're still working on some aspects of that now, right? Uh, but that was a big one in the first century with, with Jew-Gentile. Um, and if we're being honest, in our country, it took until the 1860s and a civil war for us to get some change on slavery, and then another 100 years, 1964, to get civil rights legislation, and we still have lots of stuff that's not working, right? Um, and the church finds itself at times working, working through those issues, right? And, and so one of the questions is, well, this just seems like this is new. Um, you know, why are we doing this? It's like, well, this is what the church has always done. The church always works on things that come up, right? Um, and so, yes, it worked on Jew Gentile in the first, cent first century. There have been other times where it worked on other aspects of race, okay? Um, and now women got the right to vote in 1920 in the United States, and now 100 years later we see women doing all kinds of stuff, and now the question comes up, hey, we have women Supreme Court justices and vice presidents. Maybe we should think about this, right? And, and so the question comes up in, in ways that it didn't uh, previously, right? Okay. Um, going back to this here. Um, number threes, right? Okay. Uh, diversity is a reality today in a number of practices in our churches. If you went to your church and asked, what do you believe about the Holy Spirit? Would everyone say the same thing? I'm going to say probably not. <laughs> and I feel pretty confident about that. Um, so there, there, there's diversity in our churches now, right? And so could there have been diversity in, in the first century with them working through these things? Sure, there could be. Okay. Uh, people who are not number threes. It's like, how could you think about being a number three? Uh, is diversity really an option on this issue? Come on, this is a foundational kind of thing. Male, female, uh, surely there's you know, strong direct evidence in the New Testament about what we should be doing here. Um, and you don't have to be a number three. You already have a great option. You can be a number one, you can be a number two, come over to our camp, right? Okay. So, um, one of the things I learned in talking about this is if I use any of the following words, um, traditional, conservative, egalitarian, complementarian, um, anything like that, I immediately lose like half the, con half the audience or a third of the folks because it's like, okay, now he is my enemy, right? Um, but if I say, hey, how many of you are number ones? How many of you are number twos? How many of you are number threes? Then we can actually have a conversation and for whatever reason, it's just a whole lot easier. So, um, think about those, as I read through those, um, number ones, twos, and threes, uh, which one of those makes better sense to you, okay? Uh, and of the pluses and minuses that you saw there, which do you think is kind of the most foundational? In other words, if you're going to build something and you have to start with a you know, cornerstone building block, I'm sure of this, and then let's go from there, which one of these are kind of, I'm sure of this, I could go from their kind of pieces of evidence. Does that make sense? So, um, let's, let's uh, start with the uh, latter. Um, 
as you heard the evidence for being a one, two, or three, uh, which piece of evidence did you find really foundational? Like, I like that. That would be a good starting place. That would be a good cornerstone. Okay? I mean, for me, I think that once I started to explore this issue more as I was, you know, in undergrad and graduate school and, and coming out of that, once I sort of realized that there were women in positions of leadership both within the Old Testament and the New Testament, mm -hmm. that kind of that makes you have to look at the passages from different lens, in my opinion. And almost, almost try to reinterpret them in light of that reality instead of reinterpreting all those other passages in light of you know this one passage. Good. So, so for me, that was, that was kind of the, the foundational realization. Yeah, that kind of mirrors my story too. So, as I you know looked up all these passages, and one of the things that I do with my students is let's look up all the passages where women are mentioned in the New Testament. Okay, and we first start with the name to women, and then we start with not a name, but you know it's a woman because it says mother or grandmother or something like that, and look up all those passages, and let's just name the things they're doing. And there are some stories that I didn't grow up with, right? Uh, there's some new evidence on the table for me, so I, so I had to think about things. So I grew up in a very much book, chapter, verse kind of congregation. Like I had a memory verse pinned to my shirt <laughs> every, every week that I went home, and I was expected to know that memory verse, right? Um, we had VBS, we sang the B-I-B-L-E song. Um, I mean, we were, we, we were really biblically literate, okay? Like, you would, you, you would want me on your Bible bulletin, <laughs> okay? Uh, they did a good job of teaching me Bible stories. Uh, but at the same time, if you had asked, how did Jesus pay for his ministry? I mean, you know, he goes around for three years and stuff like that. We would have said, I don't know. <clears throat> Even though, if you look at Luke chapter 8, it describes... 12 men who were going around with Jesus, and then it describes some women, named some of them, right? Um, Mary, okay? Uh, Magdalene, um, Susanna, um, blanking on the other one, and, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Who provided for them out of their means. It says women supported Jesus in his ministry as he's going around. It's in the text. And that was never one of the stories that I grew up with. And so for me, there was new evidence on the table that I need to take into account, even though I grew up in this very scripture-rich kind of place, right? Um, and, and so I, I think for a lot of folks, there, there's some new evidence on the table that you have to take into account. The other thing I would say is, um, as I'm talking to folks, almost everyone is at different places, right? Um, and I've had people ask me at different points, so is that hard to go in and talk when there's people you know that are way over here in the middle, way over here, people that don't like you? Um, it's like, no, not really. Uh, because as I look out, it's easy for me to love them because I was them, <laughs> right? I see you, but I also see myself because virtually every single position here I've thought and I've been. And when I was that person, I wanted to be respected, I wanted to be loved, I don't want to be cornered, okay? And the grace that people gave to me, I have the opportunity to share that with others. Um, 
And so is, is it easy for me to love them? Yeah, because I see myself <laughs> in those folks because I was that person, you know? Um, and then the verse that kind of is my theme verse uh, as I go out and talk about this and I get lots of opportunities like the one today, um, in addition to classes, um, is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 when Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. I can be a planter. Here's six pages of information. Uh, hopefully, you know, something there is helpful for you. I can be a waterer. We can have a conversation. You can ask me some questions during, before, after. Uh, when you see me walking across, uh, I put my um, email on the first page. I mean, we, we can have a conversation. I can be a waterer, okay? I can't be God. Okay, God gives the increase. That's going to be between the person and the text. It's going to be the person and God. So I'm kind of like a Johnny Appleseed, okay? You know, here's some seeds, and I'm spreading the seeds, and I'm watering the seeds, and I'm hoping they grow, um, but I can't provide that growth. And, and, I'm, and I'm kind of comfortable with that. Yeah? Question? Well, an, an observation about uh, the, the weakness of appealing to First uh, Corinthians 14. Uh-huh. Uh, I was, I grew up uh, like you did, uh, but for instance, I was taught that uh, the discussion of church in First Corinthians 11 starts at verse 17, that whatever goes on before verse 17 is not the church. Uh, and it wasn't just us, it was some major commentaries made that distinction. Whereas now, uh, from a literary standpoint, I see 16 and 17 as being hinges and what Paul says, I commend you, and then I commend you not, as Good. connecting yeah. those sections. Well, if that's and when when that happened to me, then what he says about women prophesying and praying became relevant to what happens in church. Sure. Whereas it had been completely excluded from church right. in my boyhood. Yep. You know, that just didn't apply because. What goes on in church starts at verse 17. Well, if, if that's the case, then you don't interpret 1 Corinthians 14 and then read back into 11. 1 Corinthians 11 what you think you read in 1 Corinthians 14 because everybody at Corinth had heard him say what he said in 1 Corinthians 11 what we call that, before they got to 14. And so it would have been fresh on their mind. Right. And they would not have thought that Paul was all of a sudden changing his mind about right. these things. So you're a North Carolina boy? <laughs> well, close. You're a North Carolina Virginia. or Virginia boy? You were raised in? Born in Tennessee. Born in Tennessee. Okay. Well, this, this uh, California boy heard similar things to that. Okay. <laughs> but the, beyond that, a very dear friend of mine wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. I'm partial to it because he dedicated it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but 
on 1 Corinthians uh, 11, he says that whatever verses 4 and 5 mean, they don't contradict 1 Timothy 2. Mm -hmm. Where women are praying and prophesying in 11.5. Uh, yeah, but they don't contradict 1 Timothy 2, which also poses a problem because 1 Corinthians 11 was written before 1 Timothy 2. So that teaching has been around. So whatever Paul says about 1 Timothy 2, I think needs to be read in light of 1 Corinthians 11, mm -hmm. also then 1 Corinthians 14, and then you think about 1 Timothy 2, rather than letting 1 Timothy 2 be the ultimate trump card. Good. Uh, Let me uh, say a couple things. Uh, one, um, I, I grew up hearing one option. I mean, this, this, this is what the text means, okay? So what, what I want to do today is to expose you to three options, different ways in which folks have come to this text, and what I think are the strengths and weaknesses as each of them would describe that, okay? So that's specific to this. Um, and then two, with 1 Corinthians 11, uh, yes, it's often said, oh, this is not pertaining to worship. I, I, I think one of the problems with that uh, is chapters 8, 9, and 10 are on Christians and pagan worship, meat sacrifice to idols. The second half of chapter 11 is about Lord's Supper worship. 12, 13, and 14 are about use of spiritual gifts in worship. So you get 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 are all about Christians and worship, and then you're going to say verses 2 through 16 aren't. Yeah. That seems problematic just structurally. Okay. <laughs> Second, if you look at verse 16 itself, Verse 16 says, If anyone is disposed to be uh, contentious, we don't recognize such a practice, nor do churches of God. It's talking about church practices. I mean, within the, I mean, the language of the text itself is, is saying that. So even though it gives you a really clean answer to, Wow, why are women told to be silent in chapter 14, but in chapter 11, they're praying and prophesying? I like clean answers, but I also like answers that fit with the text. <laughs> um, and if it means that I can't have the clean answer, and I'm going to have to have a little messier answer, but I'm going to be faithful to the text, I'm going to lean into the faithful to the text, and let's see if I can kind of work through this messiness, which is what you're saying. Yeah, good, good. Comment. Uh, yes, sir, maybe a, an opinion from you. And that is uh, the idea of how social justice might fit into this. Uh, because you know, Paul may allude to that in Galatians with no male or female, Jew, Gentile, uh, no slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And I imagine a lot of that is being fed from what he understands from the prophets. You know? And in modern days, we, we hear a lot about being equitable, mm -hmm. not discriminatory. That, that is not the way they would have described it then, I'm sure. But 
but those kind of issues come to mind for us. And uh, that's not the way the Apostle Paul laid it out, but how do you see that in playing into this discussion? Sure. Great. Great question. So, you know, uh, when we look at the Galatians uh, 3.28 passage, uh, there's two other passages that are parallel to it. There's one in 1 Corinthians 12 and one in Colossians. Uh, and all three of them either name baptism or allude to it with the taking off and putting on of the old body. Okay? Uh, so it seems like what we get in Galatians 3.28 was something that was said uh, at baptisms. You know, there's no more Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Splash. Kind of, kind of thing. Okay? Um, now, could it have varied place to place? Sure. But that seems like it's one of the things that was said. If you read the parallels in Colossians and 1 Corinthians 12, they're very similar to the Galatians 5 pass uh, 3 passage. So where did the Galatians 3 passage come from? Okay, And um, I, I, I think uh, that it's built in part on the Joel 2 passage that's quoted in Acts chapter 2. That in the last days, spirit is going to be poured on all flesh. Your men servants and your maid servants are going to prophesy. And it mentions different kinds of folks. It mentions um, male, female, right? Uh, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, okay? So there's equality of salvation. Depend, it's not been dependent on race, okay? It, it, it mentions age. It mentions slaves. Um, and so is Paul aware of that uh, Joel 2 passage? Obviously, Luke is, since Luke quotes it. It may be the longest quotation in the New Testament, certainly the longest in Luke and Acts. Um, and Paul does. And in, I want to say, Romans chapter 9, he quotes from the Joel 2 passage and says that, that it applies to Jew-Gentile. And, and so I think that the Joel 2 passage was probably at least part of the construction of those different categories of Jew-Gentile, slave-free, male-female. We know that the Jew Gentile comes from the Joel 2 passage because Paul tells us that in his Romans, use of Joel 2. Uh, but I think that the Joel 2 passage was formative for that. If you're asking where I think the Galatians 3 kind of language comes from, I think it's probably built on the Joel 2 passage. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that um, we, we oftentimes. We come to the, I used to come to the text with preconceived, you know, idea of what it meant, right? Right. Um, from, from my environment. And some of that comes from just our restoration way of looking at it. So we divided the, the Old Testament from the New Testament. But we went back and used the Old Testament as long as it supported our preconceived ideas of what we thought the New Testament was. But then you have stuff that we leave out, like Hulda and Deborah right. and all kinds of stuff. So what is it about us as a tribe that we we do that kind of thing where we go back and we grab what supports our you, you know, yeah. So so I would I would I would say a couple things. Um, let's 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 try an experiment. We're not the only tribe that Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a human thing. Okay. This may work, this may fail. Okay. So, um, is it eraser? Oh, here it is. Okay. So, um, 
When I do that, what do you see? Two dots. Two dots. Two dots. Okay. When I do this, what do you see? A triangle. A triangle. Okay. When I do this, what do you see? A square. A square. So why is it that we get squares and we connect those two, but if we have two things, we never connect it and say, oh, there's a line. We think in binary kinds of ways. And it's hard not to think in binary kinds of ways, right? When there's twos, right? Um, and I've tried this with my students. And much like many of you, they said two dots, triangle, and square. Uh, it's, it, it's kind of human. <laughs> To, to, to think in binary kinds of ways, rather than to call this a line, hardly any student ever does that. Almost all my students say triangle and square. It is extremely rare for them to say, oh, that's a line, okay? Uh, and, and, and so I think that's really hard when there are these binaries around to, to think in synthetic kinds of ways, okay? So, uh, second, second kind of experiment, and I'm being kind of, uh, again, disclosive, descriptive of how I grew up, which may not be your story, okay? But here's my story. Uh, when we read the text, we asked, what? Which was a question about content. We asked, how? Which was a question about method, okay? What should I do to be saved? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. How should I be baptized? As an adult, by immersion, for the remission of my sin, upon confession of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, we were great at these two kinds of questions. Right. Again, you want us on, our, on your Bible Bowl team, right? Okay? Um, but we didn't ask why, which talks about purpose, and we didn't ask who, which asks about identity, and this is almost always where the theological message is in the text. Right. It's almost always concerned with why we do what we do, and who is God, and who are God's people. Right. Okay? Right. And that's why I think it's hard, because I was conditioned to do great at those. So, my first uh, semester of um, my MDiv, I'm at Yale uh, Divinity School, and I have to write a paper, and it's a theology of ministry, the state, the body, something, okay? So, I'm on this. I get out my concordance, I look up all the passages that mention minister, ministry, or body, or something, and I gather them all up, and I have no idea what to do with them. <laughs> Because I'm great at gathering data and, 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 and doing content, but what does it mean to do a theology of something? Okay? And as you might expect, at some point that becomes acute. That point being the paper is due. <laughs> right? I'm going to have to turn this in. I need to figure this out. And so what do I do? Well, being the good church price boy, it's like, okay, I know baptism. Okay? So if you asked in my congregation why. Should I be baptized? Okay, we, we would have said, we're so happy you asked that because Acts 2.38 says so. Okay? Okay? Now, if you were in Corinth, 
in the 50s, and they asked, why should I be baptized? They didn't say because Acts 238 says so. Okay, but Acts 238 didn't exist, right? And they were still getting baptized. How is that possible? Okay, it's possible because they were given the theological answer about baptism, and they didn't have to go to the 21st century to get it. They didn't have to go to the philosopher to get it. It was there in the text in Romans chapter 6 where it talks about baptism being a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Just as Christ died, was buried, and, and rose, we died to our sins, um, we're buried in the bottom of waters of baptism, and we rise to newness of life. There was a theological answer in the text, but that was never the answer that I was given. The answer that I was given is because Acts 38 says so. Is that a good answer? Yes, because I believe scripture informs the faith and practice of the church. Okay? But it, but it wasn't one that was theological. Okay? And so why is that important? It's important because theological answers connect to why we do stuff and our identity. Okay? And those are, those are really foundational. And they do different things. Okay? If I'm told do something because it says so, that's a different kind of answer. An example, as a child, I may have asked my parents, um, why do I have to do this? Some of my other friends don't have to do this. Their, 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 their parents let them do this. And the answer was, because I said so. What did that produce in me? Probably something worse than it produced in you, but it produced uh, frustration, anger, uh, confusion, that was not a happy place for me to hear because I said so. But that's often the answer that we give when someone says, why should we do something? Well, because the Bible says so. Now, I'm not saying to toss out that answer. I'm saying that that's a good answer. Like, I should obey my parents because I should honor my mother and father. Okay, that's, that's a good because the Bible says so kind of thing. But there are theological answers that are rich, that connect to our identity. And it's so much different to act on because I said so kind of answers versus this is who I am kind of answers, okay? So uh, let, me, let me tell another story um, on, the, on the identity thing. So you remember the movie Lion King? Oh, y'all seen that? Okay. So you have um, Simba and his father Mufasa dies and he goes off, leaves the Pride Lands and he's uh, having a good time with the meerkats um, and warthog, Pumbaa and Timon, right? Okay. Um, and then Nala finds him and says, what? You're, you're alive? Oh my gosh. Uh, you need to come back to the Pride Land. Scar's taken over. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's horrible. And he's like, I don't know. I'm having a good time with the meerkat and the warthog. I'm not sure that I want to do that. Uh, and Nala's like, no, you, you, you have to. Um, anyway, so he has this little crisis of conscience there. And we see him out in the field, okay? And a voice booms from the heavens, um, James Earl Jones, right? Um, and says, remember who you are, right? That's an identity kind of claim. You're doing something because of who you are. And you know what? That motivates him to action. An identity claim motivates people to action. So I teach an ethics class. On the first day of class, I say the ethically formed person 
knows the good, does the good, and desires the good. Okay? I think we've done a good job with letting people know what the good things are. Here are virtues, here are vices. <laughs> right? And encouraging good and bad behavior. So growing up, if I did well, I got rewards. If I didn't do well, I got punishments. Okay? How well do we do with getting people to desire the good? Right? right? right. And if our behavior is only motivated on because it says so, that doesn't tend to produce desire to do the good. Mm-hmm. So the temptation still seems better. Or yeah. it produces desire to do the bad thing, like yeah. don't yeah. touch the wet paint. Yeah. Now I kind of want to touch the paint. Don't go on the other side of this fence. Well, I kind of want to see what's on the other side. I mean, it almost produces the opposite kind of behavior, right? Uh, and so because we haven't been able to think theologically, it's hard to produce a desire for the good, right? But if we can help folks think theologically, I think it goes a long way toward the desire to do the good uh, that's beyond because it says so, which I think is a good reason. But it doesn't create that desire to do the good. Is that what happened to Eve? Tell me about it. Tell me, tell me what you're thinking. When God says not Oh, yeah. Except. Paul says that explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. the same human nature. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. well, the human brain, like if you just say, don't think of an elephant, can anyone not think of an elephant? No. Mm-hmm. We have, to, like, our brain just yeah. automatically thinks of an elephant. Yeah. And we, all, we also have the language of, like, forbidden fruit. Like, oh. once you're told not to do something, then it becomes a little bit attractive, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's this, for, this forbidden fruit, right? Um, so I, th- I think one of the reasons why um, is because we haven't. I hadn't, and I think many churches haven't, been uh, raised to think theologically, right? Uh, And without that theological foundation, then it makes it harder to desire the good. So I'll tell you one other story, um, which I didn't plan on telling you, but it's the afternoon. It seems a little bit like story time. Okay, so I was at a church, and I presented on women's roles in the sermon and the class. And afterwards, I had lunch with uh, elders and their wives. And so it's a kind of a long kind of table. And um, the one of the elders' wives comes, and she sits directly across from me, and she brings her Bible, and she puts it on the plate. I, I thought, well, we're going to have a theological discussion for lunch, <laughs> which I'm totally fine with, by the way. Okay, uh, that, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, and she said, okay, I have a hard time with what our church is thinking about doing. It seems like we're thinking about having women do stuff because of what's going on in culture or because some other churches are doing it or maybe some women are in our church are arguing for more power or positions. And I think that's terrible. Uh, and before I could say anything, the minister who was seated to my right um, said, that's exactly not why we're doing this. Um, we're doing this because of who we are as God's people. And who we are as God's people has a vision for what it means to be male and female and the mutuality that's there that we don't see in our culture. If we look in our culture, we see women who are objectified, we see domestic violence, we see sexual abuse, we see sex trafficking, we see pornography. Uh, The culture doesn't know how to do male-female, but we have an opportunity to model what it means to be male and female just like we have the opportunity to model what it means that there's no more Jew and Gentile. 
culture doesn't seem to know how to do race very well either. But we have a vision for God's kingdom. We have a vision for what it means to be God's people. And we want to try and live that out. And in one of the most remarkable, probably the most remarkable transformations, because when she sat there, her body was tense. It was rigid. She was, she was angry, and rightly so, okay, based on what she was thinking about why they were doing it. And her response to the minister was, that's something I can get behind. Because it was based on her identity as a Christian. We're trying to live this out as God's people, and this is who we are. And that's a different reason for doing changes, right, than other kinds of reasons that can float up, right? Uh, so I don't know how the question got started two or three stories back. But I think one of the challenges is um, I had a hard time thinking theologically because of the way I was raised. My students have a hard time thinking theologically, okay? And in my experience, one of the big hurdles for congregations in, in thinking about what it means to be male and female is being able to think theologically about what it is to be male and female. Okay? And so the midterm essay for my students in the class I just finished is a theology of gender. Tell me what it means to be male, what it means to be female in God's eyes. It seems like that's going to preach with this next generation. You know, like what got us, you know, our, our elders, you know, certain what's and how's may have worked to a certain extent, right? But this generation is asking questions differently than we did. And I think we have to be theological. I would say my generation didn't know how to think theologically very well, but we were extremely biblically literate. Uh, this generation is more open to thinking theologically, but they're not as biblically literate. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that if you know we had a, a Bible literacy um, test with y'all and my uh, students, say especially freshmen, um, you'd do better. <laughs> I think that's because our purpose and our identity became. It's, it's, our, it's our method our yeah. It wasn't, we couldn't think for ourselves. We, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like on the hinge of the young yeah. and because our identity still is wrapped up in our biblical literacy, in our what and our how, as opposed to how we can actually sit in the why. I mean, I actually thought it was great. Whoever knows the most wins. This is awesome, okay? I'm like a pretty smart person. I can actually win at this, right? Um, but, it, but it turned out that it was actually more complex than that. I mean, it matters about your heart. It matters about being able to think about other things, kind of, kind of stuff, not just memorize a bunch of facts from Acts. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. When I grew up in the Stone Age, I mean, I was born in the 1900s. <laughs> 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 uh, the churches of Christ were known for biblical knowledge. Yeah, we were. And they would often debate. Yeah. So when I grew up in the church, it was like, you know, you need to be ready to give an example of an answer yes. in scripture. So that's for that studying of the Bible. That sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. And book, but chapter, verse kind of stuff, exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. When, when my son, you know, he's, he's a young man now, and we were talking about, you know, the issue of male, female in the church, and he said, 
well, that's just stupid, you know. <laughs> that's his answer. And I said, well, in the Bible, da, 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 da. Why, what? he knew nothing about that, wasn't interested in it. He said, Mom, it's just common sense. Why, you know, I don't think God would, would want that. But I was concerned because, you know, I said, his name is Anson, I said, Anson, we're not doing this because we're old fogies. It's because of the Bible saying this and the Bible saying that. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, man, you know, it's got to be this balance. You know, yeah. you have to understand is that why we do what we do mm -hmm. and, and, and what's, what's the biblical reference or issue behind it. And, and also, yeah, who we are, our identity. I don't see it as one or the other is a blend of both type of thing. Now, let me give another example. So I got kind of excited when it was like, ooh, okay, I think I'm kind of getting, you know, some uh, leverage on this kind of thinking theologically thing. I can, you know, turn in my paper. Uh, and it's like, okay, so what are the things did I you know, grow up with? It says, okay, so why, why should we give, okay? You know, the acts of worship, okay? Uh, well, we should give because 1 Corinthians 16 says so, okay? Um, interestingly enough, 1 Corinthians doesn't tell why we give. It tells that they gave, okay? It tells when they gave, first of the week. It tells how they gave with glad and cheerful hearts. It doesn't tell why they gave. In addition, it's not talking about giving to the local <coughs> church. It's talking about giving to a relief effort in Jerusalem. So a little bit apples and oranges there if we're talking about why, why we do this in the local church, um, okay? But Paul has two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians talking about giving, and to make a long story short, uh, Paul connects it to Jesus, and he describes Jesus as one who was rich, who became poor for us, talking about the incarnation. So if he asked Paul, why should I give? He would say, that's a Christ-like thing to do. You become more Christ-like when you give. That was never something that I heard, right. ever. I heard because 1 Corinthians 16 says so, because it's humanitarian kind of reason, it's your duty, it's stewardship Sunday. I never heard because it's a Christ-like thing to do. You become more like Christ. And that is a theological answer, right? That's connecting it to the foundations of our faith, who we are, right? And I tell my students, there are some things in Scripture that are more important than others. Sometimes what they hear is, oh, you think some things in Scripture aren't important. No, that's not what I said. Some things in Scripture are more important than others. Well, why would you think that? Well, because when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, he didn't say, uh, trick question, they're all the same. No, he said the greatest commandment is love God, and the second one is love your neighbor, right? Uh, in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect what? The weightier matters of the law. You guys are so literate. Um, okay, so some things in the law weigh more than others. It'd be nice if you told us what they were. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, right? There's some things in the law that are more important than others. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when I was among you, I preached to you as of first importance, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? And, and so what are, are there ways that we can tie this to our foundational identity, right? Because there's some things that are more important than others. And can we tie it to those aspects of our faith that are, that are foundational? Wait, you had your question in the menu. So as some, maybe the only person in this room who was not born in the 1900s. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, 
I felt like my identities as a woman yeah. formed my opinion before the gender politics got really involved in my life. Yeah. Like my identity as a woman and my identity as a Christian who seeks to love God and serve God with the gifts that he gave me, why would he have given me the gift of speaking? Why would he have put me in these positions and places where I have the opportunity to like to, to teach, actually? Yeah. And why would those be in me? Why would he have put those in me? Why would those be a core part of my identity if I'm not supposed to use them for his glory? So for me, my basis came from within the identity. And I, I would like to say that I am pretty biblically literate. Good. <laughs> but I do think that those things made me feel it more because they came from within me. Right, good. So when we talk about resources for theological reflection, we have scripture, we have tradition, we have 2,000 years of people reading those texts, right? We have reason, and we also have experience. And that role of experience hasn't often been part of the conversation. So Sarah Barton, um, cha chaplain here at Pepperdine, uh, wrote a book describing what it's like to be a woman growing up in Church of Christ. It's a great description of that, and that hasn't been a part of those discussions, the, the, the role of experience. The other thing you describe is one of the three things that I usually talk about with the theology of gender, and that's the gifting of the Holy Spirit, right? So Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, and men servants and your male servants are going to prophesy, right? Okay. Um, and then Paul talks about the gifts being given for the common good in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, okay? Um, but when you read the gifts there in, in 1 Corinthians 12 or other places, there isn't a list of boy gifts and girl gifts, <laughs> okay? When you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you read about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, there's not a list of boy fruit of the Spirit and girl fruit of the Spirit, okay? And it's pretty evident, and yet at the same time, for a lot of folks, they haven't noticed that, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, yeah, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, is not gender-related as you read in Scripture, right? It is gifted, poured out on all flesh for the common good of, of the congregation. And that's a foundational way to think about what it means to be male and female, and who we are as a male and a female as God's children. Thank you. So I came in a couple minutes later. I hope I didn't miss this. Did you already yeah, that was all the best part. Did, did you talk about how to properly appoint a woman elder? <laughs> OK, so the last part I had was female elders. Do you, do you, do you want to talk about that? Yes. OK, so um, on pages 5 and 6, the passage that usually comes up is husband of one wife. How can you have female elders when a description of the qualities is an elder should, should, should be the husband of one wife? Okay? So let me talk a little bit about that, and then I'll talk about in general. So interestingly enough, our favorite place, 1 Timothy 5, right, uh, has a phrase that's very similar to that, and it's talking about a widow, and it says, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So the flip of it, right? Okay, husband and one wife, wife and one husband. 
So what question is that phrase answering? Okay. The question that it's answering is, was this widow a one-man woman? Was she sexually faithful? And interestingly enough, this phrase, one man, woman, one woman, man, comes up in the ancient world, not just among Christians, among pagans as well, okay? And it means, I had a sexually faithful spouse, okay? The question is not, is this person currently married? We know that because she's a widow, okay? <laughs> That's obvious. Um, does this person only have one husband? It's not talking about polygamy, okay? Has this person been married only once? It's not talking about divorce, remarriage, or a spouse has died or something like that. In fact, widows are encouraged to remarry. So we know those are not the questions that it's answering, okay? So if we take that knowledge and then move to husband of one wife, it makes sense. What question is the phrase answering? Is this husband a one-woman man? Was he sexually faithful? It's not answer, answering or asking of an elder. Uh, an elder has to be currently married or not. So if you're appointed as an elder, your wife dies, then you have to resign or something like that. Okay. Um, does this person only have one wife? Talking about polygamy. No, it's not talking about that. Same with uh, women. Has this person only been married once? You can't be an elder if uh, you got remarried after a divorce or you got remarried after your spouse died. It's not, it's not asking those questions. It's asking was this a one-woman man, okay? So, does this phrase presume that the elder is male? Yes, it does, okay? So what do you do with the idea that the phrase assumes that the elder is male? Well, some would say that all elders need to be men, okay? Um, others would say the reason that the text describe elders as men is because the church at that time was predominantly patriarchal. That is, it would be surprising for folks at the time to think of leadership in other terms. And in fact, it's hard to find pagans who talk about those kinds of things in equal kind of ways. We do have uh, Musonius Rufus, uh, who has a tractate, Women Should Study Philosophy Too, okay? But that's, but that's pretty rare, okay? So what do you do with the cultural aspect of the text? And to illustrate cultural aspects of text, let me read from the 10th of the... Ten Commandments, okay, which you would think is, you know, the last place where you would find something cultural. And I thought I had that marked, but maybe I don't. Okay. Uh, here it is. Okay. Um, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So what belongs to your neighbor? Donkeys, oxes, slaves, and wives. Wives are thought of as property. This is in the Ten Commandments. Okay. So can you have cultural aspects about male and female in even the most unlikely places? Ten Commandments. You know, foundational beliefs about what it means to be a moral person. Yeah. So you have cultural aspects there, right? And so is this one of the cultural aspects that we have here? That men were uh, presumed to be leaders, and so of course we're going to pick male leaders. Um, and obviously, uh, for some, the answer is going to be yes. For obviously some, the answer is going to be no. And then 
what you say in that last bullet is what I just said to you about gifting and how the Holy Spirit plays into that. If you go to the next page, this is a fuller kind of, you're a fly on the wall, and the congregations that I have been in where female elders were appointed, how did they think about it? Okay? Um, so, they would say, both male and female are created in God's image, an identity kind of claim. They have the same identity at the foundational moment of creation. They have the same functions, exercising rule, being fruitful. So, aside from biology, which allows them to be fruitful and multiply, do you see any differences between male and female creation? The Holy Spirit, do you see any boy gifts and girl gifts? Okay? Uh, verse 3. Uh, verse 3. <laughs> Point 3. You, you, can, you can tell I've been thinking in book chapter verse for a long time in my life. Uh, do we have some women who already serve as elders in our congregation, but we just don't call them elders? In other words, if you want to see what a female elder looks like, <coughs> are there any women in your congregation that provide pastoral care, that have spiritual wisdom, that manifest the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit? I think you probably do. And so if you want to know what a female elder looks like, it's probably not too hard to see what it looks like. Um, we have multiple examples of female leaders in Scripture under number four. Number five, the exercise authority is better translated as being bossy. Number six, the point you had, the role of experience. Number seven, uh, the reason elders are described as men because of the culture at that time. And then uh, number eight, also culture. Scripture contains cultural expectations that we no longer follow, levirate marriage, head coverings, men raising hands when they pray. Is this also one of those? And for the folks that have decided to have female elders, uh, that would be a yes for those. The folks that haven't, they would probably be a no for them. Okay? But just, just to give you a sense of what that conversation looks like. Okay, we have one minute left. Ooh. I just had a quick, uh, when you were listing the, the reasons of why it would have assumed the elder was male, I find it interesting that studies are now showing that when given e purely equal opportunities, less, a smaller percentage of women will seek roles of authority or leadership. The vast number of women will naturally on their own seek nurturing or service roles. So even if you remove the cultural understanding of hierarchical authority that existed back then, it's also a scriptural acknowledgement that there is going to naturally be more men suited to a leadership type of role than women, not because of any lack of function or of uh, intellect, but more of a lack of a desire as well. I was wondering if that could... I would say, I would say something differently. Uh, so in my class, we talk about the social construction of gender, the biological construction of gender, and the theological con construction of gender. So we do a theology of gender, we talk about biology and how that affects it. But we also talk about the social construction of gender. Like, in a culture, what you've always seen, done, and heard is very formative. And so in response, I think some folks would say, well, yeah, there's going to be women that don't because they've never seen someone female who's done that. You know, they've never seen a female vice president, so how could I ever be vice president? Uh, they've never seen someone that looks like them doing those things. Um, so yes, uh, there would be folks who 
speak as you do and say there's something constitutive about male and female, and there would be others that say uh, there are social constructions of gender that give expectations that aren't necessarily theological constructions of gender. Okay, uh, we're out of time. I am absolutely delighted to talk uh, with you uh, further right now, or if you see me walking across campus, or if you want to email me. Thank you for... Thank you.